Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Richard, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here. So are you calling in from Boston? No, I'm in Oregon. I'm in Bend, Oregon. Bend in Oregon. Is that your home? That's where I live now, yeah. Okay, that's quite a nice place. Is it good weather these days? Uh, it snowed yesterday. It snowed. So that's a, a yes or a no. I'm guessing that's Well, I like it. You like it. So that's why you moved to Oregon. I didn't know it snows that much. I mean, I'm familiar with the rainy weather. We're up a little high here, uh, 3,800 feet, and we're right on the edge of the Cascade Mountains. And there's a river that runs through town that sort of divides the mountains from the, the high desert, which is to the east. Yeah, I suppose it's a good place if you like hiking and going outdoors and sightseeing and so on. Yeah, right. We're in the middle of the state. Yeah, I mean, we're three and a half hours by drive from Portland, so we're not we're not urban here. We're not urban. Okay, I'll put it on my list of to-do places I need to visit. Okay, so there's many things we can talk about, right? Because you've obviously had a very extensive career in strategy. But I want to focus on your latest work in your book, The Crux, because I thought it was very interesting when I read it. It was a new perspective on strategy. Let's help the audience understand the principle of The Crux. So how is this different from current styles and forms of developing a strategy? Well, the, it's actually extremely traditional. Strategy, as a word, goes back to the ancient Greeks. Yes. Uh, it means the art of the military leader or general. If you actually can take it back further than that, the strat and algiard are Indo-European root words that mean uh, uh, leading a herd. Yes. <laughs> So strategy is about directing a group yeah. to some end. And its its earliest incantations were about military leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem is we're being attacked, what do we do? Or the, the issue is how do we what should what should we do? And I think that was very well understood by anybody who used the word, but somehow we've gone off track. Um, there's a whole industry out there selling strategy advice. Yeah. Now, I take you back in time to, to when I first studied the subject in, uh, in the 1960s. Uh, there wasn't any literature on business strategy. There was one book and one article, and that was yes. it. There was nothing. And, and, and we sort of began to think about strategy as, as how do you compete? And okay, that makes sense. And then we began to get tools, more tools. We had uh, matrices and boxes and diagrams and learning curves and five forces and so on. And all of these tools have made us wiser and smarter and our ability to analyze competitive situations has improved, but the tools aren't strategy yeah. any more than having a, a plumber's toolkit makes you a plumber. 
Uh, strategy is problem solving. Strategy is dealing with uh, a problem, a challenge. That's why you need a strategy. Yeah. You need a strategy when you have an opponent or a difficulty. If you don't have a difficulty and you don't have an opponent, then you don't need a strategy. That's what the word means. It means a, a clever way of dealing with something. What's happened to us is two or three things. One is that we've gotten used to leaders saying that, uh, that they have a strategy yes. when all they're doing is mentioning their ambitions. Okay, makes sense. So we have a national defense strategy in the United States that says we ought to be, we ought to prevail in wars. Yes. Oh, okay. That's nice. That's my strategy is I should be happy. <laughs> um, we have companies that say our strategy is to satisfy the customer or to grow or these kinds of uh, aspirational goals. You have companies that say our strategy is to exploit Moore's law in order to lead the semiconductor industry, more or less what was Intel's strategy for many years. And okay, that's 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 edging in between, you know, yeah. what we're going to do and uh, what our ambition is. But for many many companies, you know, strategy has become this list of ambitions and goals. Yeah, what you want to achieve. And the problem is that's not a strategy. Yeah. It's not, you know. So people will say, "Well, okay, given that we have these goals, now what's the strategy for achieving them?" Yes, that's backwards. That's backwards, in my view. That you know, if you name an arbitrary goal or you name a goal, mm -hmm. you actually made a very important decision about what is going to occupy leadership's time and attention and where you're going to shovel resources around. And, and you've made a decision. That goal is a decision. Well, where did that decision come from? Mm, I don't know. It just came. Um, I'm reading a textbook here. It says, uh, before you have a strategy, you should establish your long-term goals, like to be the technical leader. Well, wait a minute. Where did that come from? Yeah. So, I used to do that. I used to teach that. I used to think that mm -hmm. way. And gradually, as I worked with companies, it began, I began to realize that that was leading people astray. That strategy is problem solving and problems come up episodically, sometimes every year, sometimes quicker. Uh, and, and these challenges and problems, dealing with them is what strategy is. And so I, I call my approach challenge-based strategy. Okay, Richard, I'm going to ask you a question here to help the audience understand this point, okay? The challenges you face are determined by the choices you make. So for example, I'll just use an example. If GM decides, which it has, to go all into electric vehicles, the challenges it faces in going all in into electric vehicles is a choice it made. So now, just for the audience here, which is the strategy, the decision to go into EV or the challenges it faces after it goes into EV? Well, if we back up to where it made this choice. Yes. 
they should have approached that choice with an understanding of the challenge involved. In other words, you don't just say, if you're a strategist, you don't yes. just say, we're going to build electric cars. Yes. You say, okay, electric cars is an interesting place. That part of the market seems to be expanding. Um, what would be difficult? What would be the challenge for us to getting into that? You know, where, where, what makes that hard? What makes that uh, not so easy? Uh, and, and, and maybe the challenges aren't that great. And you say, well, okay, this is something that's easy for us and it's an expanding market and all we have to do is tell our engineers to do it. Okay, fine. That level is barely even strategic. Yes. Uh, but if it is difficult, if, for example, you don't understand lithium batteries and they all come from China and you're not so happy about that, then if, uh, if electric vehicles have other engineering or sales problems and they have to, you have all these, you have these challenges and then you have to decide, well, how am I going to overcome those? What's my strategy? Uh, Tesla, when they went at it, you know, their biggest challenge was, was not the electric vehicle, was the fact that it only went a couple hundred miles before it had to be recharged and there weren't recharging stations anywhere. So that's a big chicken and egg challenge that they had to face. Um, so I think that you don't just out of the blue say, I'm in the electric car business and then later discover, oh, wait a minute, this is difficult. I think the difficulties and solving those difficulties is part and parcel of the strategic decision or choice to invest in the electric vehicle business. But isn't it fair to say that that's not how every company operates? I mean, there are some CEOs who are under pressure. They don't fully grasp what it's going to take to get into EVs, as an example, and they're doing it because they feel they have no choice. Sure. That's right. So they're not fully grasping the challenges. They make the choice and then they'll try to figure it out as they go through it. So I'm trying to unpack it for the audience to get them to understand how they're going to think about this. Because if we say the strategy is facing the challenge, sometimes we pick the challenge without thinking through what's well, required. It depends, it depends on how big a deal it is and how yeah. important it is and how critical it is to the organization and how difficult you, you think it is to going to be to do it. Yes. Now, if you see an opportunity that looks pretty sweet and it's not that difficult to take it, okay, go ahead. Don't waste your mental yes. muscle on stuff where it doesn't feel like you're going to need to exercise that. Um, so let me back up and say, the primary thing about strategy is that it's about a concentration of resources. It's about a yeah. focus. Uh, the lesson of strategy for the last couple thousand years is that you need to focus resources on the enemy's weakest point, or yeah. you need to focus resources on the greatest opportunity, and you need to coordinate your actions that if you tell one group to do something and the other group to do something opposite of that, these are people working for you, you you're nullifying your efforts. And so you need some, some cohesion and coordination yeah. there. Now, you can't hope in a large organization to coordinate everything. It's just too complicated. Yeah. But hopefully around the critical issue that you're facing, you can get this focus. Now, CEOs in general have, have hoped and 
particularly in large complex organizations, that by enunciating their values and their overall yes. strategy, that people will sort of go along and everything will work out. Often it doesn't. The need to actually direct activity toward critical issues is, it's being eaten away at by mm -hmm. this notion that, well, we make a strategic decision, we, we enact a strategy, and later we'll figure out how to work it. That's what happened to the United States in Iraq and in Afghanistan yes. and some other unpleasant stories. Yes. Um, you're going to first decide what to do, and then later, three years later, you're going to figure out how to make it happen. Um, this is not a good way to proceed. Uh, Intel has got itself in trouble because it, it it can't make chips at the cutting edge of technology anymore. Yeah. Well, how did it get there? Well, I don't, I'll, I'll go through that story if you like, but it got there partly by having strategies that didn't face up to its fundamental difficulties. I want to step in here a little bit because what you said is important. I want to make sure the audience gets it, okay? You used a choice of words, I think are pretty good here because I think it helps people understand these concepts. You talked about how you get a company to focus its resources on the biggest challenge it's facing or the critical challenges. And then you mentioned quite rightly is that in most companies, not everything's going to be aligned along that, but it's important for the CEO and his team or her team to get the right resources focused on the biggest challenge. Now, I think this is the key one here, because I think when people are thinking about this, what you're saying is, if I understand correctly, is that the strategy is that process of aligning the resources, but you need to determine that upfront and not say, I'm going to go into EV and then try to figure it out three years later. Right. Why are you going into EV? Oh, going into EV because the market's growing. Yes. And the Intel example you gave is actually a very good example. And you worded that very well, whereby they selected a set of strategies, one after the other, that did not address the critical problems they faced. And that's a good way of saying it, because when you think about strategy in that way, you see it through a different yes. lens. Well, if you look at chapter two in my yeah. book, The Crux, I, I devote a lot of time to Netflix. Yes. And it's back in 2018 is where I base my analysis. And I'm trying to take the reader step-by-step step through, yes. you know, how would you formulate a strategy for Netflix? And Netflix is riding high in 2018, but there are some alarm bells ringing that some of the Netflix has been getting content from studios and yep. other television-like producers. And it's been licensing them and showing it on its, its programming, its show, and it's been doing very well, been growing like gangbusters. But gradually, some of these content providers are taking the, are increasing the fees dramatically or taking the property back because they want to start their own streaming services. Yes. And then at, the, at that moment in time, Apple has announced that they want to create a streaming service and Disney wants to create a streaming service and Paramount wants to create a streaming service and on and on and on. So these are substantial challenges to Netflix's future. And so I go through a strategy analysis. Well, what do you do about this? Yeah. Now, 
sort of the, the, the MBA case analysis yes. in Netflix and said, well, we're in the streaming business. Yeah, yeah. Here are our growth goals. And, and yeah, there's competition, but you know, we're a good competitor. They don't get into this in detail. And I try to in there and I try to suggest, you know, how you might formulate a crux yes. and how you would deal with it if, if you were uh, the CEO of Netflix. And I pay particular attention when I'm thinking about strategy to asymmetries and what differentiates me from yes. Disney or Apple or Paramount. And one of the key things that differentiates Netflix is that it's got a, it's got a fairly substantial foreign audience outside the U.S. Yeah, and it's and got, And so, one of the things that Netflix could do to 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 differentiate itself from the roaring competition that's going to happen in the U.S. is is relying on uh, foreign production uh, for for being a worldwide streaming service. But that challenge is very, very real. And it's it's like only this last month that the market has come yeah. to realize that Netflix is vulnerable. Challenge-based strategy, I think. I, I didn't used to think this way, yes. but particularly since I wrote good strategy, bad strategy, and began to spend much more time in corporate strategy sessions and working with companies on strategy, I began to see what they were doing in, in detail, yes. trying to help them. And what I saw was that in, I would say over half the cases of companies that I, I tried to work with is their strategy session is one where they set financial goals. Yeah, that's true. They get and together I used to be a strategy partner and a lot of it was setting financial goals and it's a very fancified budget process yeah it's well they set some financial goals some market share goals they may mention safety and diversity and climate change but basically there's financial goals that then roll into the budgeting cycle yes. uh, next month or the month after and that is a distraction richard you said something a few minutes ago i didn't want to interrupt you at that point it's an interesting choice of words, which I've not heard before. And I want you to unpack this for the audience. You said that a company needs to set a crux. What does that mean? I think I know what it means, but it's such an interesting choice of words, whereas if a company needs to determine what is that primary challenge, is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. The, the crux is in some sense a choice. It's a decision. Yes. Uh, but it's also an intuition. So it's, yeah. it's not quite right. You know, you could say Michelangelo decided to give uh, the, the Mona Lisa a smile. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's also an intuition, a piece of art. It's, and so strategy in the end, solving a crux problem is an insight. It's, yeah. it's part of the, uh, what we like to think of as design or the whole gnarly problem solving activity where humans humans can do this we can look at a situation and we can we can intuit a way through it we can see a solution to an or a problem and that puts the crux in place now the crux can be also a choice it can be where uh, if i'm uh, leading a company i can simply say look this is our challenge and this is how we're going to tackle yeah. it 
hopefully I've done the analysis that leads up to that. And analysis doesn't have to be, you know, a 500 page consulting. So none of them should be 500 pages, actually. but you know, a diagnosis is critical here. So, so when you're going to do challenge based strategy, you're have to try to understand what's the nature of the problems I face. What's difficult here. Uh, politically, we have huge problems doing this because yes. of all the different interest groups. But Here in Bend, Oregon, yeah. there's a lot of interest in homeless people, which we have, and it's it's a growing number of homeless people. And to, but to unpack that and say why is this a problem? Mm -hmm. There's so many different interest groups. There are people who want to say, well, the problem is that housing is too expensive other people yeah. say no the problem is there's not enough work or the people say no the problem is that we're not generous enough other people say oh no the problem is oregon made drug use legal oh yeah. and so on so there's all these different political groups and interest groups that have different views about the nature of the situation and the strategist has to somehow integrate that and come up with a viewpoint on the situation that allows some action to take place. Because the strategist is not a philosopher or a political analyst. Yes. Strategist has to choose a problem where some action can help resolve it. Yes. If there's no possible action to resolve the situation, then I say pass and work on something else. Um, because again, strategy is about which battle will you fight you can't fight them all and you can so, only fight battles you can win so pick the crux and come up with the solution if you cannot come up with the solution move on right so the crux is a difficulty but it's also a difficulty you think you can win you yeah. can surmount you can deal with in other words don't go after something that you're going to commit resources to but you're not going to win anyway pick another right. battle that is the battle you should be fighting. Correct. Because a lot of companies pick battles they cannot win. But you know, so what you were, you were asking me a very interesting and, and, and subtle and difficult question, which is, you know, why do don't people just do this automatically? What exactly what is it that leads us in That's some strange. other direction? And, and I said, well, one of the things I see is that people tend to focus on financial goals yeah. and call it a strategy. But on the other side of that is there are many executives who don't like to talk about difficulties. They That's think true. it's a sign of weakness. And in some cultures, you can't even do it. That's right. In some cultures, you can't do it. You can only talk to your closest advisor or just okay. yourself in the morning in the mirror <laughs> about difficulties. And so that inhibits analysis. It inhibits the ability to, to think through what's going on. Most leadership situations at the national political level that I've seen, the top person walks in the room with already an alternative in mind that they want to pursue, an action yeah. they want to take. And the discussion is around, not about does this action make sense, but about how do we sell it? How do we package it? And where that action came from, it was in the air. It's one of the possibilities, but the, the really diagnosis of the situation doesn't take place. 
And so the unwillingness to look at difficulties is, yeah. is a second. A third, of course, is we have dramatically increased the incentives on, on corporate leadership for short-term results. We have levered up the incentives for people to pop the stock price, uh, to borrow money and buy back shares, to uh, do whatever they can do to get uh, earnings uh, not going down, certainly going up, and so on. And so those, those strong incentives turn, turn people's attentions toward those accounting results. And then you have to talk to Wall Street uh, at yeah. least once a quarter, and those people are going to ask you about your your short-term financial results. And so the, the, the house that you live in when you're a modern CEO of a public company is abuzz with these short-term measures of performance. And it's natural to begin to interpret strategy in mm -hmm. terms of making those numbers look better. Yes. Because and of course, that's to. not wrong. You want the numbers to yeah. look better, but that's not how but you But it has do to it. be sustainable. That's managing your numbers. That's not the entrepreneurial task yeah. of actual corporate leadership. So let's just think about this, right? For the audience. I always come back to the audience and I'm remembering that they're going to have these questions. So listening to the conversation, there are some prerequisites here. One is that a strategy needs to identify a crux. It needs to be the right crux and it needs to be solvable. Right. So if a company comes up with a strategy to say, well, you know what? We want to double our market share, but they have not identified the crux to get them there. That is not a useful strategy. No, unless, unless motivation is all it takes. It's, it's not even... It's, it's not very rarely work. motivation is all it takes. You're trying to double your market share. So this is interesting. So it's a, it's, it's a frame of thinking that is not very common because often strategies the way I've seen it done is a lot of analysis, telling a company what it should do, as opposed to identifying the crux in getting there. That's right. And so the, 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 the crux strategist or the, the consultant, if you're a crux consultant, the first question that I ask a client is after they tell me what their strategy is, and their strategy is usually a, uh, a joyful look at how great things are going to be yes, next year. That is true. Uh, you know, it's a sell job to the board of directors at Wall Street, which I guess you have to do. I don't know. But that's a strategy. That's what they say their strategy is. And then I say, well, why is this hard? What stands in the way? Because if this is really easy, we're wasting our time sitting here talking about it. Yes. And so, well, why is this hard? What makes this difficult? And these are questions they're not used to answering. Um, and they'll say, well, it's hard because it requires us to grow so fast and growth is always hard. You know, so they'll give me some kind of pat answer like that. Yes. Um, and you dig a little deeper. You say, well, what, what make, you know, who's going to have to do this? And what, what, what difficulties will they face? And we say, well, this involves us setting up new operations in Australia and New Zealand and Indonesia. Yeah. And you say, well, okay, so why is that hard? Well, we don't have anybody that knows anything about those places. Oh, okay. 
Well, that's a difficulty. Uh, so let's go out and hire some people. Well, that's not so easy because, and so you begin to unpack it yes. and, and say, well, what is our difficulty here? Um, well, we ran into a little lawsuit. So you, you, the, there are negatives there that they don't yeah. want to get into. The other thing, if you're a challenge-based strategist is you will find as a consultant or as a strategist that about half the time the problem is us about half the time is that the it's the organization itself that is the difficulty it's not functioning well it's not functioning smoothly it's it's got some kind of log jam either yes. political logical something's missing and that isn't part of the standard strategy literature or talk strategy is sort of like the outside world and then you go to organizational development people for the inside world no if if your organization isn't functioning well that's a strategic problem and it has to be thought about and addressed it may be the most important crux problem you have i want to unpack that that's an important point and i think it's the big one here because we talk about identifying the crux, make sure it's the right crux, and then committing the right resources to the problem. Now, in a lot of companies, that's where they have the problem. How do you commit resources to the problem until it's fixed? And how do you bring together often warring parts of the organization who have never collaborated, asking some to cede control, asking some to take control? So. You are right, in most strategy documents, it's very external looking. Competition, but not the ability of the company to respond to the challenge. Yes. One of the examples I spent time on in the book is Nokia. Yes. Which was the leading mobile phone company. Uh, it really almost invented the uh, GSM standard and became the leading producer of, of phones in the world pushing their Symbian operating system. And then it basically collapsed uh, in the face of the smartphone revolution mm -hmm. inaugurated by uh, Apple and then Android. But the odd thing is that, that Nokia didn't have to collapse. They knew they had spies in Apple that told them exactly yeah. what Apple was up to. Uh, the CEO kept telling everybody the touch screen is the most important thing. That's the yes. future. We've got to have that. So that was his strategy. His strategy was we're going to have a touch screen. But it didn't happen. There was no engineering group inside Nokia assigned to develop that. There was no one with the financial and political power to push such a project forward. Uh, the leadership of Nokia had, had transitioned from being engineers into being accountants and lawyers. And so they could call for results, but they were sort of disconnected from what was happening on the ground. Yes. It's a much more complicated uh, situation than that. But well, that's so pretty much they, the, the gist. Yeah, yeah. The, the organization couldn't do what it needed to do. But you see that quite often, right? I mean, right now, it's interesting because pretty much every three months, there's a story that breaks about how Apple doesn't seem to have the ability to organizationally commit itself to electric cars. And there's some exodus of executives leaving every three or four months. Now, I'm not saying that is the right crux for them to solve. 
but here's a company with Apple's resources. We don't have to comment on Apple's, I'm just using them as an example. But how do we distinguish between a lack of commitment from the top versus just you know, organizational dysfunction? Well, I think the top makes choices. And uh, there's, a, there's a fan club out there that would love Apple to make yeah. a car, yes. an electric car. Um, and I, I have no deep connection to Apple. I don't know anymore why they would choose not to do that, although I can suspect uh, that it's, it's already being done by other companies. They're not going to have a unique position other than their brand name. And it exposes you to all sorts of weird liability stuff that yes. unless you're an automaker, you're not used to facing. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit here. I want to talk a little bit about how companies now set strategy, what they think is strategy. Because I was reading the Financial Times this morning, whereby a major oil company, the CEO was talking about their strategy, and he was heavily focused on what market share they're going to take, the countries they're going into, and the investment plans for the next five to 15 years, because oil companies have a long investment cycle. But at no point did he articulate what is the central crux they are trying to solve there. My thinking here is that whenever you see a strategy, it's almost always a projection of finances, budgeting, capital plans, and markets. Yes, that's sort of a modern disease. It's displacing the word strategy to mean our ambitions. Exactly. That's right. so ambitions have become the sort of new strategy. So how do we get leaders to avoid that mistake? What do they need to do? How do they change their mindset to think about strategy in a different way, in, in the way that we have articulated in this call? The fundamental issue for, for a company is that you're going to somehow beat the competition yes, or meet the competition yeah, or overpower the competition. And you've got to explain how you're going to do that and you know, what your edge is. The fundamental thing that a company needs to have to succeed is some kind of a symmetry between themselves and their competitors. It doesn't have to be the largest in the yeah. world, but there has to be something different that they're exploiting. It could be that they're just the oldest and the most trusted oil company in the world. And therefore, we have an advantage in dealing with whatever. And so Shell for a long time had an advantage that they weren't the imperialists. Yes. They weren't the Brits. They sort of were, but you'd come out of Holland yes. and they weren't the Americans and they weren't the this and that. And so they, they, they went after lots of places in the world that were a little sensitive about the colonial empires. And Shell was preferred in some ways because of that. Um, and so that's an asymmetry that they use to advantage. Now, they wouldn't say that publicly. Yes. But they did know it internally. They weren't like in ignorance of that. Their major shell for many, many years, their major yeah. strategy was fundamentally political. That they, they had school systems that they ran in the countries they served. When, when, when Marcos was the leader of the Philippines, they had uh, his son going to school with a top shell person's son, and the opponent, the political opponent, was going to school with another top 
Shellperson's son. So they were they were engineering political alliances a generation ahead. So that's way beyond what you see lots of companies trying to do nowadays. Yeah. You know, they're trying to engineer their earnings for the next quarter, which is a that's a fun game, but it doesn't get you ahead. We're right now, I mean, my goodness, in 2022, we're living in a world where to use the term uh, that Andy Grove created, we're in an inflection point. Mm -hmm. The world is changing in, in fundamental ways. In, in the medium to short term, we have inflation that we haven't had in a long time. We've got a generation of financial people who've never had inflation. They don't know what to make of it. We've got a generation of stock speculators who've never seen a down market. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We've got uh the globalization thing uh reaching some limits and we may be looking at a balkanization of the world which we haven't seen since the 1930s uh we have uh war in europe uh we have uh china is 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 uh contesting the United States for technological and, and moral leadership of the world. And yes. we haven't had that in a long time. Uh, competition is supposed to make us stronger, but people are like, they're, they're, they're unsure about how to compete anymore. Uh, and so we have all sorts of changes happening. We have, we have a young generation coming into uh, companies uh, who want to be activists, political activists. So you have employees now that want to be activists. And so what do you do now if you're Walt Disney and your employees want to take political positions? Uh, so companies have all these different changes that are happening fairly rapidly in the world. Uh, and they have to take a position on these. Uh, and that's a very interesting time to formulate strategy. But I suppose it makes it even harder because with all of these challenges, how do you identify what is your crux? I'm not In, saying it's impossible. Obviously, it needs to be done. But I'm saying that here the challenge becomes, it's compounded because sometimes you may not identify the right issues. I mean, there's no exact science here, as you say. There's a lot of intuition. But I think it's even more important that leaders go through this process. Yes, yes. And, and it, part of the job of leadership is to pose a problem to the organization that it can solve. Yes, that's a very important point. Uh, the ability to be able to solve something. And so the crux is in some sense, a leadership tool to pose the challenge to the organization that the, that the organization can rise to and deal with. And you pick and choose among all these different things that are happening the one that best suits what your organization can do. You don't pick the one that your organization can't deal with. Yes. Uh, inflation, everybody's in the inflation pot. Yeah. So competitively, it's, it's, you have to deal with it and adapt to it, but it's not, not obviously uh, something that, that you're going to get competitive advantage or disadvantage yes. from. The balkanization of the world, that's a big one. If you're, if you're a company that's bet heavily on, on globalization, you may have to turn from that and make, yes. make some important 
choices about how you're going to proceed now. Well, we're seeing companies making those choices right now. Right. Are you going to actually support reshoring on the United States or are you going to look for other places around the world? You, and you have to look at what you think is going to happen politically. What is what is leadership going to do in the United States and Europe? And, you know, I have my views on that, but this is not the time to, to air that. But, yeah, these these are these are in this is a big inflection point moment where the world is changing. And there's an old Arab saying that I always remember, which is that he who forecasts the future lies, even if he tells the truth. Oh, I like that. I haven't heard that before. And you can't forecast the future. Yeah. Uh, but you can look at things that are already happening. And so, for example, if it storms in the Himalaya, you can predict it will flood in the Ganges Plain. Mm -hmm. Now, that's that's the forecast you can make. Yeah. Things things that are that are already in the system and working their way through it. Uh, and the inflation is one of those, and probably a recession somewhere in a year or so. It's it's pretty forecastable. Beyond that, we don't know. It's, it's forecastable that what's happened in the Ukraine is making people much more sensitive to having energy security and not to being dependent on oil and gas on some other state that may be a competitor or even an enemy. Yes. Those are big, big geopolitical deals. That's how we got into war with Japan, partly, is because we cut off their oil. Yes. The reason we're discussing this is because this has implications for companies and the choices they make. That's right. So the, the changing geopolitical landscape is nothing we're going to influence as a company typically, but it's stuff that we have to take into account and, and make a bet on. We take yeah. a position. Uh, that's what happens. You're, you're a capitalist and you take, you take position, you take some risk and you, you, you have an idea about what you think is going to happen. If you pull it all in and just go to cash, well, you're not going to win anything. <laughs> yeah, of course. What you said is actually so true, but it's so simple. You have to make a choice and do something. You have to do something. That's right. Now, sometimes you're going to get it wrong. Yeah, and that's just it. You are going to get it wrong sometimes, but you still have to make a choice, act on it, pick yourself up, find the next issue, crux, as you say, I like that word, and move on. So let's just think about this, right? When CEOs are now thinking about strategy in this way, does it mean they have to manage their businesses differently? I think so. I think that you have to have a greater emphasis on dealing with the crux issue mm -hmm. and not a list of 100 different things. Yes. I tend to go into companies and we'll, we'll do a strategy session or I'll watch them do a strategy session and they'll raise 25 different issues, Yes, which is fine. Those are challenges. A lot of them are goals and things like that. And if I'm working with them on what I call a strategy foundry where I'm, they've committed to yeah. two to four or five days even of, of, of intense meetings on strategy, usually they'll develop a list of at least 12 and up to 25 different issues, challenges, things that they're facing. 
I'll first interview people. I'll send them written questions. Yeah. They write written answers back, which I keep confidential. And we get a lots of different challenges out. Too many. And I want them to see that it's too many. I want yes. them to understand that you can't do all of this. And then given those challenges, and we, we go through this cycle of what makes it hard and what can we do about any of these? And some of them, they, they don't know what to do about it. Others, they have ideas that we could maybe do this or maybe do that. And we begin to sort them into piles almost. Um, sometimes I'm just rough and I say, let's, let's take yeah. 10 of these off the table. Which 10 should go? Because we can't look at them all. It's too many. Um, and then we'll begin to appraise them in terms of, well, how critical is this challenge? Is it a big deal? Yes. Or is it a moderate deal? And how solvable is it? Do we think we can make progress on this one or is it just way out there? And that's a beginning to zero in on the crux. We're beginning to, to figure out what is both really important and potentially solvable. And then I pull in the time horizon. I say, well, I, wanna, I want you to think about something that we can do, a project to tackle one of these issues that's going to become the crux, where we can get success, some kind of measurable success in 18 months or maybe three years if it's that kind of a company. But that's it. That's the horizon here. Uh, don't tell me about the next decade and the decade beyond uh, and, then, and when the earth is a boiling cinder. I don't want to hear about that right now. I want to hear about what can we do where we can have a party and have beer and steaks or uh, we can have uh, whatever the local yes. celebratory food is and and celebrate that we've we've done what we said we were going to do. Now, I don't want to hear a goal like increased profits. I want to hear a task yes. that we're going to do that we will accomplish. I want to hear a task that we can actually accomplish. Oh, is that painful? And we go around on that and, and almost always they want more than one. But that's the process of zeroing in on what are we actually going to do here? And it's very action-oriented. Right. It's action-oriented and it's within the near term. Why is it in the near term? People ask me. And I say, well, first of all, it's in the near term. So we can tell if you're actually doing it. Yes. Secondly, it's in the near term because some of you are annoyed that your favorite program or project isn't here on the list. But if we make it an 18-month cycle, then in 18 months, maybe that will get back on the list. It's not a forever decision. It's a, it's a transient focus to solve this problem, get stronger, and move on to the next. And I remember working with uh, one company, yeah. Fortune 500 company, and after we did this, the CFO said, well, but where's the strategy? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, and he pointed to a chart that we had pinned yes. to the wall that was their strategy from three years ago. And it was a list of things that they were going to achieve. And I went up to that list. I had my marker in my hand, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my red and green marker. And I, I said, okay, number one, uh, safety. Did you improve safety? Uh, actually, no, there were more accidents. Okay, X. 
profitability. Did you improve profitability? Well, no. X. Um, and we went down the list of all the things that were on the strategy and only one of them had been accomplished and it wasn't a big deal thing. It's just, that's what you want. You want a list of things that you're going to fail at, but that sound nice. And I, I, I shouldn't have said that. I was, I was too rude. Yeah. But that's the enemy. The enemy is thinking that that feel-good public face list yeah. is your strategy. And it's not. You use the word it is the enemy, but it's also what people consider strategy to be. That's right. Because I've been in many strategy planning sessions and what the company wants is to list every problem and come up with a set of goals once they fix the problems. Right. They want that. No one wants to be left out either. Every, yeah, every job and every function has to be mentioned. And this is the thing, you know, we always say strategy is a matter of choice. It's the choices you make to allocate resources, but you cannot allocate resources to everything. It's just not possible to do that because the company would be dysfunctional if everything was at the same level of prioritization. That's right. And so you know, what I task this group with is, okay, look, you've got to create a public face for the strategy and you know how to do that. And I'm less concerned about the public yeah. face than about you eight people have agreed that this is the focus, this crux is the focus over the next 18 months, that you'll all agree to support one another, you won't badmouth this, and that you'll commit to making this work, making this task happen. And that's the strategy. The strategy is your leadership inside the company about pushing this particular program of action forward so yeah. we accomplish what we've said we're going to accomplish. And whether that shows up in your 10K or your board of directors report or your Wall Street presentation, it's up to you. But this is what is actually important. This is what you actually have to do. The irony here is that having sat in investor presentations, one of the most common things investors ask for is, tell us how you're going to do it. We want sure. to know how you're going to do it. So I don't see how That's this sensible. is bad. Of course. Right? I mean, it makes yeah. sense. But the, 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 <laughs> the spreadsheet, the, the modern spreadsheet has almost made analysis worthless. You can well, that's cook just up the point. Anything analysis has become commoditized. That's right. There's just too much analysis, in my opinion. You know, well, I mean, I've I, actually seen cases where companies put together 500 slides of analysis on a strategy. Oh, my God. It's just everything is analyzed, but they haven't identified the most important problem. And right. It becomes a laundry list. So I like the way you put that forward. And you've actually introduced a phrase I've never heard before, the public face of strategy. How do you explain your strategy to the market? And I like that because I think that's something executives need to think about, which is this is the crux, this is how we're going to deal with this, but now we need to know how we're going to explain this to the market. And that's a good way of thinking about it. If I take you back to President Roosevelt and the yeah. Second World War, I have a chapter called Plan Dog in the book. Yes, yes. They analyzed the situation with a war looming up on both the East and the West. And they, they understood that they could not fight two world wars at once. 
And they made a decision that was secret at the time. It was that we're going to concentrate on Europe. Now, the troops, the Marines who fought in the Pacific didn't know this. Yes. MacArthur knew it and he annoyed him, but it was never made public. The public face was never that. If, if the Japanese invade and conquer Australia, we'll deal with that later. That, that, was, that was the strategy. And, and it, was, it was hidden because, well, for obvious reasons, because it's war. Yes. But at the same time, in corporations, there's certain things you sort of keep under your hat. True, yes. You, uh, don't, you don't give away your hand, right? Right. You've actually touched on an important point here, Richard, because there's something I always advise clients is don't take what your competitors are saying at face value when you are determining what you need to do, because you don't know what they're saying publicly and what they're doing privately. And oftentimes people forget that when you're analyzing the strategy of a business, you know, I've seen clients, they just take what a competitor is doing and they say, this is what's happening, but it's not always what's happening. And I think that's something we, we tend to forget. And I like this concept of the public face of a strategy. And it's, it's a critical thing to keep in mind. Well, it, it, it sort of explains the functionality of, of having these uh, happy face yes. strategic statements, and which I don't mind particularly, as long as there's actually some serious strategy thinking happening, happening yeah. <laughs> somewhere in the boardroom or, yeah. or in, the, in the corporate offices. Yeah, that's true. But it often is lost whereby, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this, where I've seen smart executives assume that the public facing strategy is the strategy. That's right. And they get confused and they get lost in the process. And I think that was one of, that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make. I think, I think some of it is that's how you wind up as CEO. <laughs> that's true. You, you, you can do you, some double speak. <laughs> well, no, the boss gives you a target. You hit the target yeah. and you get promoted. And then now your new boss gives you a target. You and hit you the, hit the target, target and you get promoted. And now you're the CEO and you say, well, what's my target? Yes. And so you, Wall Street tells you your target. But you're playing the same game you played as a manager, but you're no longer a manager. You're now the leader. And uh, the objectives are not given to you anymore. They are tools you, you use to guide the organization. Yes, because your role in the allocation of resources changes as you move from manager to leader. But many people don't notice that difference. And they, start, they keep using the old techniques they had, which worked for them. That's right, Mike. So it's very interesting. I actually enjoyed this conversation immensely, Richard. Thank you so much for it. Oh, well, thank you, Mike. I it's, really enjoyed uh, it. I think our audience is going to love it. I obviously speak to many CEOs and lots of people, but this thinking is useful, it is unique, and it makes sense. That's what I hope. No, it does make sense because it's, you see, the problem that I've always encountered with strategy is that it was never action-oriented. Right, and it, it should it, be. Yeah, it should, strategy is about allocation of resources to do something. And usually it should be, it must be fixing some kind of problem, as you call it, the crux. But often strategy statements are feel-good statements, whereby companies talk about what they're going to achieve. They gloss over the challenge because they don't want to talk about it. Nobody actually thinks about it. And then the strategy statement is just something where it's almost as if if it's not something positive and uplifting and rah-rah, it's not a strategy statement. You know, I would like to see a strategy document which says, you know what, guys, this is our biggest challenge. This is what it's going to take. This is what it's at risk. And this is how we're going to do it. And it's serious. Yeah. 
And the only time you actually tend to see that is during something like a turnaround of a state-owned enterprise where you it's already burning down. That's right. And it's too late. So it's too late. It's too late. But then everyone knows what the crux is. It, you know, it, and it, it's just, it always surprises me how strategy has almost been hijacked by this idea that you can't tell the truth. It has to be positive. Yeah. No, it's uh, people don't want to look at the difficulties. Yes. They don't, they want, to don't want to talk about it. And they may talk about it on the sly, but, but publicly addressing the fact that things aren't working. Yes. It almost comes to the fact that, you know, I don't know how it happened. And you probably know this a little bit better than me, but somewhere down the line, when I was a consultant, there was a strong delineation between operations, organizational design and strategy. Mm -hmm. And it almost as if the strategist had to come up with a plan, but it didn't matter how it was implemented because <laughs> that was operations task. And, and I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen this, whereby there are strategies that do not take into consideration the operational realities on the ground. Yes. And yeah, obviously they, they... those will fail. Yeah, they're, they're basically outward looking. They yeah. analyze market segments and cost structures. And they assume that it's just going to click your fingers and everything's going to work internally. Well, the other thing that's happened is if you look at the major consulting firms, and I'm not going to name any names here, yeah. but there's been a move to consolidate finance and strategy practices. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's, and it's absolutely true. That turns the strategy question into how do we get our TSR up? Yes. And if you look at strategy analysis, a big part of it is the business case. Yes. And, and in fact, I've seen strategy documents where the entire strategy is, is just a business case. It's nothing about whether this can be done. It's about if we took a 5% market share, this is what it would translate into our bottom line. Yeah, yeah. I, I go through in my book a whole scenario where I'm sitting in with a CEO and the top leadership of a company, and they're preparing a presentation to the board of directors. And yes. they're looking at, you know, well, if we get this market share, what does that mean to a present value? And, oh, we got to get an 80% market share. To, no, no, 50% is the minimum. And, you know, they're not looking at the what they have to do to compete. Them, yes. They're looking at how can they manipulate the numbers to make a plausible case. Yeah, it's a sad indictment of consulting, leadership, business schools, that it's come to that point. But with conversations like these, I think we can get people to talk about the most important things. So thank you so much, Richard. We'll definitely be in touch. I, I enjoyed speaking to you. It was a pleasure. Mike, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. I hope you have a good day. And I'll reach out through the agency and make contact. All right. Bye now. Take care. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.